It's Wednesday, May 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. According to the latest Axios Ipsos poll, in a best-case scenario, only half of Americans would be willing to participate in a voluntary contact tracing program. Widely seen as one of the key elements to reopen the country, a distrust of the government and big tech companies drives the sentiment not to release sensitive personal data. Margaret Taleb, politics and White House editor at Axios, joins us for how people feel about getting back to normal. Next, doctors are learning more about how COVID-19 affects a person's body, and they are finding that it is more than just a respiratory disease. It can damage the kidneys, heart, brain, and blood vessels. Doctors are also reassessing how to treat it. Blood thinners are being used to treat blood clots, and genetics could also play a role in how it affects you. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for all the ways that the coronavirus attacks the body. Finally, as states legalize recreational and medical marijuana, community associations and municipalities are having a problem with their pot-smoking neighbors and how to deal with the odor. It's prompting some homeowners associations to ban smoking, and companies are having to install elaborate air filtration systems. Beth DeCarbo, real estate columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The results were really striking. Like the highest support under any scenario that existed would be if public health officials, including the CDC, ran this. Okay. But even then, it was only 51% saying that they would be likely to do it. Joining us now is Margaret Taleb, politics and White House editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. It's great to be with you. We've been talking a lot about what it's going to take for states to reopen effectively and safely and get everybody back to work. One of the things that everybody kind of agrees on is this whole notion that we need a robust system of contact tracing. And in the latest Axios Ipsos poll that you guys have conducted, it doesn't look too good for contact tracing. There's a lot of people that aren't really willing to opt into a program, especially if it's run by the federal government. Margaret, tell us a little bit more about this, please. Yeah, we're doing this weekly poll where we're gauging uh, Americans' experience with the coronavirus and trying to get to behavior now and behavior going forward. And we did try to get to this question, like, how likely would you be to participate in contact tracing if it involved cell phone technology and if it was voluntary? And the results were really striking. Like, the highest support under any scenario that existed would be if public health officials, including the CDC, ran this. Okay. But even then, it was only 51% saying that they would be likely to do it. So that's like one out of two people in the best case scenario. And when you ask, well, what if a tech company was the face of this program? Or what if your cell phone company or the federal government was the face of this program? The support for that was much lower, somewhere around a third or even below a third in the case of the federal government. So Like, on the one hand, you can say, well, it's not going to be a cell phone company that's going to be running this program. It's not going to be the White House that's going to be running this program. But even if it is public health officials, even if that's how people perceive this to be, you still have a very steep hurdle to convince people that it's in their interest to participate in this. And it seems to be a general mistrust of how the information would be used. There's mistrust of the administration. There's mistrust of tech companies. And there's just that libertarian streak that kind of comes with the American way. Like, I don't have to give you my information about where I am and that sort of thing. And it's tough because as the time has been going by and you're hearing stories about, oh, this so-and-so was working on a contact tracing app, things like that. It's been 
a big tech company. It's been a company doing it for their own employees. It's been all of these different things that people just don't really trust. And everybody wants it, at least on the local level, something that they know maybe their local officials can handle. But yeah, as you mentioned, just big distrust of the government overall on this. You guys got a lot of different findings from this as well about how people feel about returning to work, travel, things like that. Fill us in on some of those numbers. This is a really interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, you still continue to see the infection rate climb, the death toll climb in the United States. And you even see like at the White House where people are tested constantly because they could have exposure to the president or the vice president. Even inside the White House, you've seen top officials make the decision to self-quarantine because there have been infections that are pretty close to the Oval Office. And so in the face of all that, which shows we're not out of the woods yet, even the president and people close to the president can be exposed to the risk here. Even in the face of all that, you just see people kind of getting sick of being cooped up at home. And so you're seeing a real softening in some of these behavioral changes. You're seeing the percentage of people describing themselves as self-quarantining going down And most people, like overwhelmingly, nine out of 10 people still say they're social distancing. But what does that mean? We're seeing a real softening in the number of people who are willing to visit close friends or relatives. They'll say, well, I'm socially distancing, but not with my sister or my running partner, right? Well, that's the whole whole notion of, uh, uh, you know, you've heard it out there, the bubbles, the people that are close enough to you that you feel comfortable being around them. And you just kind of hope that they're also practicing that social distancing, I guess, except for you. And from your guys' poll, there was uh, 32% of people said they visited family or friends in the past week. Speaking to what you're saying, people are ready to start opening their lives back up. They're tired of being cooped up. People are trying to figure out how to measure risk and how to balance kind of risk reward. You know, we asked another really interesting question, which is how risky would it be to go back to your pre-coronavirus life? but also how risky would it be to go back to your normal way of working? And so one is a much broader question, which is like, would you go to concerts again? Would you go to restaurants again? Going back to work, there's you know more of a fence around that. You know where the place of work is. In general, you know how many people you'd be around. We got really like different answers. So two-thirds say it would be like a major risk, a large risk, or at least a moderate risk to go to try to go back to their pre-coronavirus lives. And then within that group, less than a third said they would be willing to take that risk right now. Okay. But then you ask the smaller question, like, what if you could just go back to work the way work used to be, your normal workplace or the job that you temporarily don't have right now? How risky would that be? Four in 10, think that that would be really not that much of a risk at all. So that's a lot of people who are ready to go back to work. They either don't think it's dangerous or they're like, okay, it's kind of dangerous, but I'm willing to take that risk, even if I'm not really willing to go back to life. So you see, again, it's not like a runaway train. It's not like people are done with it and saying, forget about it. I'm just going to go back to life as normal. But, but they're, but there is a clear slide in that direction. Even the number of people who are afraid to get on an airplane, we've seen it soften a lot over the course of the last month. 73% thought it was a major risk a month ago. 63% think it's a major risk now. So um, we're watching these numbers as they change week by week, but they're on a pretty clear trajectory. A few weeks ago, there was a real peak of fear, maybe four weeks ago. And now we're seeing people kind of trying to figure out how to test the waters. Margaret Talev, politics and White House editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
We're seeing a lot of cardiac issues, myocarditis. We're seeing um, blood clots. We're seeing neurological effects. I think we have a lot of studying to do to learn more about COVID-19. We really don't know what's going to happen later on to the patients who have survived COVID-19. Joining us now is Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. Thanks for having me back. I wanted to talk about COVID-19 and how it affects the body. We're learning a little bit more a few months in after fighting this. In the initial days of the outbreak, a lot of the efforts that we were focusing on to help treat this was focused on the lungs. Uh, COVID-19 was affecting both the upper and lower respiratory tracts, but we're finding out that COVID-19 affects the entire body in a lot of cases. There's damage to kidneys, the heart, brain, COVID toes is a thing. There's like some rash that develops on people's feet. Lenny, tell us a little bit about what we're learning now a few months in. What doctors and researchers thought was going to be primarily a respiratory disease and that they geared up to treat as a respiratory disease has turned into something that is much more widespread when it hits different people. That is, it hits different people in different ways. So, for example, one of the first things they saw that had nothing to do with the lungs was people coming into the hospital before they were even in intensive care having damage to their kidneys. And then people who got even sicker than that were requiring dialysis. That has nothing to do with the lungs. They are seeing blood clots that break off from the legs and occur in other parts of the body, then travel to the heart and cause heart attacks. So, They have a virus on their hands. We have a virus on our hands that is much more difficult to cope with than just the respiratory type of virus we saw with SARS or MERS. It's much more severe than that, and it's much more of a challenge than that. And what we've talked about before, they think it's a combination of two main things. We've talked about the overreaction of the immune system or the cytokine storm. But the other thing that they really are kind of seeing a lot more now is it causes a lot of damage to blood vessels. And the damage to the blood vessels is kind of what loosely leads to all of these other problems that we're talking about now. But talk a little bit about the blood vessel damage that happens. Without getting too technical, the virus attaches to cells through a receptor called ACE2. And it seems to particularly target the endothelial cells on the inside lining of blood vessels. As you can imagine, they're everywhere, all throughout your body. And if the virus finds those receptors and targets those blood vessels, it in some ways doesn't matter where they're located. As long as the virus can find a home and can do its damage, it's going to do so. Now, these ACE2 receptors are very plentiful in organs in the lungs, in the intestines, even in the kidneys. So when the virus targets these blood vessels and attaches through these receptors, it can do damage all across the body. And how is the treatment changed? How doctors respond to this? As we've been talking about early on, we thought it was going to be a primarily respiratory disease affecting the lungs. That's why there was such a huge call for ventilators. Everybody needs ventilators. We need tons of ventilators in case the oxygen levels drop really low in people and they need help breathing. And that's kind of changed now. And because there is this focus on blood vessels and things like that, they're saying that blood thinners might help out in some of these areas. In response to the coagulating blood, to the clotting blood that this virus causes, there is an increased use of blood thinners in hospitals across the United States. There's also this phenomenon, and this is respiratory, that people come in with a silent hypoxia, which means that the oxygen level in their blood is incredibly low, at sometimes down near levels that would normally cause 
unconsciousness or death, but they're still talking. They're still actually conscious and upright. Doctors have become increasingly aware that people who are functioning and still seem to be okay with sort of minimal symptoms actually have very low oxygen levels in their blood. So they're becoming much more adept at checking that quickly and intervening quickly. With the kidneys, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, so many people require dialysis that in one hospital, they ran short of the material, the equipment, and the fluids that they need to do dialysis. And in another one, they had so many people who were requiring it for 24 hours a day that they had to ration the time on those machines. So this is a virus that requires a lot of ingenuity on the part of the healthcare providers. So where this virus first began as a respiratory virus, they think it's killing as a cardiovascular virus. What's the hypothesis on why there's such a range of effects on different people? I've been reading that they just think it could be genetics. Just everybody is a little different, and that's why people are all affected a different way. This is one of those questions that's going to take years to sort out. Could be genetics, right? Could just be my makeup's different from your makeup. When the virus hits, it affects me somewhat differently than it does you. Could be our underlying comorbidities. You have one kind of illness that you've been living with all your life, and I have a different kind of illness that I've been living with all my life. Could be our age. Could be how much virus we got, under what conditions we got the virus. They just don't know. And if you think about it, this is a six-month pandemic. We're in the early innings of this ball game. Normally, you make conclusions like this after years, sometimes decades of research. And we're not going to know until that research occurs, even if it occurs faster than it normally does. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Anytime. There were two condo owners who lived next door to each other, and they're locked in a battle. One owner uses marijuana from her medical condition, and the other owner says the secondhand smoke aggravates her medical condition. Joining us now is Beth DeCarbo, real estate columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Beth. Thanks for having me. wanted to talk about an interesting story about marijuana. As more states are legalizing recreational and medicinal use of marijuana, community associations and municipalities are having to deal with the smell. There's people that live in condos and apartments and things like that. And if it's legal to smoke, they might be smoking in their homes or something. The neighbors can get a whiff of it. It might be bothersome to them. And then it becomes a whole other mess. Beth, tell us a little bit about it. There was even somebody in a condo situation who were suing each other over the smell. <laughs> That's right. It is very complicated. And I think the very pungent smell adds to the complication. In Augusta, Maine, there were two condo owners who lived next door to each other, and they're locked in a battle. One owner uses marijuana from her medical condition, and the other owner says the secondhand smoke aggravates her medical condition. So far, one of the owners has sued the other. The case was dismissed, and it's been elevated to a complaint filed with HUD as a fair housing complaint, and that's still unresolved. And it's interesting because uh, with a condo situation, in most cases, some of these situations would already be outlined in the agreements you sign when you buy the condo. No smoking in common areas or no smoking even inside the house or something possibly. But since these laws are constantly changing, 
some of that stuff hasn't been put into some of these agreements before. And, and this is where we're kind of running into some of these problems. And to make those changes, it requires sometimes a vote by all of the homeowners. And it's a difficult process, a long process, and one that may not necessarily fall to the favor of the person who's seeking the accommodation. Most boards have written rules that ban smoking in general use areas or on the property altogether. But now uh, I think a lot of them are going to open up their covenants and bylaws and look at adding a marijuana clause to it for the same reason. And the other angle, though, if it's for medicinal use, somebody has their prescription and all that, you can use that as a basis for, well, you have to allow me also. So, yeah, it's definitely going to be a tricky situation as people go into it a little bit more. Actually, you don't have to allow it. If somebody buys a condo unit and in the bylaws it states that there's no smoking of cigarettes or marijuana, e-cigarettes, even if you have a medical condition and it's been certified by a doctor, they don't necessarily have to allow you to smoke. You can ask for an exemption and hope that the board will do that. And in fact, boards are actually increasingly agreeing to exemptions, but there's no right to smoke in your condo if the rules spell out that you can't smoke. And how do municipalities handle these things? Odors coming from, let's say, a dispensary or something. In California, for a long time, we had just been hearing about, well, if you're set up on a street or something, you have to get all these special vents and these special kind of filters to filter out the smell and things like that. So how does that play out? This is a whole other issue that doesn't involve homeowners directly in their units. There's a fair amount of cannabis activity, retail activity, distribution, cultivation, especially in California. And it's kind of infiltrating entire neighborhoods or vineyards and hurting businesses. And it's complicated because when California voters approved Proposition 64 in 2016, it legalized recreational use of marijuana, but it also gave the state's 540 city and county jurisdictions the right to ban or restrict cannabis operations at the local level. So as a result, there's a whole patchwork of rules that have emerged and you don't know if you're buying a home or setting up a business, what's permitted in that particular municipality. Yeah, I mean, it's just a totally interesting thing. I'm assuming there's a lot of people, the smell doesn't really bother, but probably more people that really just don't like the smell. I know, obviously, cigarette smells, With regards to selling homes and things like that, it could definitely hurt sales. But this is probably just right in the same line. You know, it sticks to the walls. It sticks to everything inside a home. And it's just tough to sell a house that has been inundated with smoke for a long time, whether it's, like I said, tobacco or marijuana. Even if you're an active marijuana smoker and have no problem with it, the third hand smoke, the residue that gets in your carpet and your walls, your draperies and the woodwork can actually hurt your resale value. There was a 2013 study of real estate agents in Ontario and Quebec, Canada, and it found that smoking tobacco in a home, it didn't look at marijuana, just tobacco, can actually lower the value of the home by up to 29% and the home could take longer to sell. Beth DeCarbo, real estate columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.